You're listening to the unofficial Shopify podcast. This podcast is brought to you by WebsiteRescues.com. Are you making the most of your store? To download a totally free guide with 25 conversion rate optimization ideas you must know about to effectively optimize your Shopify store, head to WebsiteRescues.com and fill out the form. Shave off hours of guesswork and start growing your revenue. I'm excited. We're back. We're in season two of the unofficial Shopify podcast. Um, season one went great. We started with an audience of zero, really did very little to promote it in truth. Um, and after about 25 episodes, found we'd had 16,000 downloads, which is really well beyond what I would have um, hoped for and hoped as a success. Um, so that's fantastic. It's, it's really been quite powerful. Um, and I realized as producer of the podcast that the seasons are entirely arbitrary. You know, it just felt right to to take a break, take a hiatus, um, and start again fresh. So, you know, I just got back. Um, this is our episode one of season two, and I just got back from the double-year freelancing conference in Norfolk, Virginia, where I was um, I was a speaker, and I had it was really like a business retreat where I, I left my business for several days, spoke at this event, met incredible smart people, um, spoke with lots of great folks and really was able to get like a top down view of my business. And while I was there, um, my, my colleague cohort friend Kai Davis was there and he's joining me now, Mr. Davis. Hey there folks. Glad to be here. Hey. Um, so yeah, Kai, Kai was there. Kai spoke as well. Um, and we also did, we both spoke and then we did website teardowns, which was cool. It was an hour of improv website uh, uh, boosting and feedback, and probably the most fun I had at the event. Yeah, it was. Yeah, there was a, a speaker who unfortunately was ill; he couldn't make it. Um, and Kai had the brilliant idea of pitching the the conference organizer Brennan Dunn on, "Hey, you know, we've got one day. Let's ask people to send us their websites, and once they've done that, um, let's you know just." load them up in front of everybody and constructively go through them. We called them website teardowns, but you know, it was constructive advice. Um, and oddly, even though essentially we had to ad lib the whole thing and it was easy and kind of a no brainer for us, that was what people got the most value out of. Oh yeah. Multiple points following I, that was on, I think early on a uh, uh, day one of the conference and for the rest of the conference, people kept coming up to us and saying, Hey, h- how did you learn how to do this? What's your feedback on my site? Uh, uh, what did you mean by X, Y, Z? And it was so awesome to realize that this is an area that people are like, Oh, Hey, getting authoritative, authoritative advice on what I can do to improve my website is wanted is needed. Yeah. I mean, it was that actually, you know, so we did it. It was fun. But the real eye-opener was, you know, the, uh, a gentleman who came up to us, an attendee. Um, actually, he came up to you, Kai, and he said, he's like, hey, how'd you learn to do that? Like, what? what? What do you mean learn to do that? <laughs> I froze. Yeah, it, it was a question I wasn't expecting and struggled to answer. Yeah, it's like, is there a book for that? <laughs> and, you know, good and good or bad, there isn't a book on it. There's no way to learn to do it. It's just, it was, it's experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've probably built... Of 50 to 60 websites over my life, written sales, written 100 to 200 sales pages. And it's just by going through the motion so many times that I'm able to look at a site and say, hey, you know what? These are six things, six areas of opportunity, and here's how you could fix them or improve on them. And it's really a, a 
it's a learnable skill. I'm just not sure how I learned it aside from doing it a bunch and slowly getting better at it. <laughs> yeah. 10,000 hours experience and then you're good to go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So then we had talked, um, and we'll, we'll announce it here. Uh, we're going to kind of, we'll, are going to offer that as, um, as a productized service, a thing you could buy from us. You'll get, uh, our two lovely voices and faces on Skype or, uh, uh Google Hangout with your website for an intimate 30 minute conversation where we tell you how you could do things better and uh, specific actionable advice on how to improve whatever result your website is putting out there for you. Yeah. You know what? And uh, based on, you know, our experience at DYFConf, it, it should be um, an incredible value for people, but I'm going to, you know, I'm gonna, at the time of this recording, I haven't put it up by the time this is published. We'll have, um, we'll have it up and I'll include the link in the show notes. Excellent, excellent. So, um, so probably like, uh, all right, Kai. What was the the most common issue we saw that was just like universal to every website that we did the teardown on? So we looked at fourteen websites in total, and thirteen out of the fourteen websites failed this one test. And this one test was: is the copy on your homepage or your main marketing page you focused talking to the reader? or me-focused, talking about yourself. And 13 of the websites just committed what, what I see as the number one error, where they took this brief moment of time they had with the reader to talk about how amazing they were as a business. Let me tell you about me. When really, and I think you pointed this out, and I've stolen the phrase since, you want to use your website as a mirror you're holding up to your customer, holding up to the visitor, and so it's reflecting their problems back at them. And one of the most effective ways to do that is with a you-focused voice in your marketing copy. Are you looking to increase your sales? Are you the owner of a Shopify store? Do you want to invest and get a return? Versus the canonical example of like, hello, I am agency website, let me tell you about my amazing awards. The contrast there being when it's you-focused, you're talking about the issues the person is already experiencing, and it's easier for them to say, oh, hey, they know what I'm going through. I want to work with them. Yeah, it's like so. A traditional example would be like, let's say, um, you know, let's say you sell exhausts for, for for Ferraris online. This is a great. It's a niche. It's well defined. It's good. But most people would say, uh, we have, you know, we're the number one seller of Ferrari exhausts. We sell five hundred Ferrari exhausts. When in reality, it should just be looking for a new exhaust for your late model Ferrari? Question mark. Mm-hmm. Or or. Uh, uh... Is the one thing bothering you about the Ferrari, that tailpipe or exhaust rattling around, connecting to whatever pain they have and letting them self-identify as, oh, yeah, that that's something I need or, yeah, that's something I'm trying to solve. Yeah, you immediately, <laughs> you immediately connect with them. And at the same time, when you write that way, you're actively disqualifying. You're you know, hitting the nail on the head for your ideal customers while telling everybody else, this isn't for you. Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. you know it, um, it's counterintuitive, but when you do that, you actually sell more. Oh yeah, and it, it's so scary to think, oh, I'm writing my website in a way that's going to turn away potential customers. But it's sort of like, are they a potential customer if they don't actually need what you're selling, or are you just lying to yourself on your metrics? <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, you don't want you know. I can tell you, oh, great, you've got these visitors, but if they're not converting, who cares? They're mm-hmm. useless. Like you, and I, hopefully you didn't pay to get those useless visitors there. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I'm fond of saying coming from a search engine optimization background, I mean, I could spend a hundred bucks and get you 10,000 visitors tomorrow, 
But what's the value in that traffic if not one converts to being a lead or being a prospect? Similarly, with copy on your website, the more narrow you make it. If you say, this service is for Shopify store owners who are making $1 million to $2 million a year and looking to achieve X, well, you're disqualifying, disqualifying everybody who doesn't fall into that. But the only people who reach out to you are the ones who say, that is me, that is my business, that is how I want to grow – which is going to result in a higher conversion rate to working on projects together or building cool things together. Absolutely. Um, so the other, what was interesting about this conference is, you know, as speakers, we were told, come up with actionable advice. And what was interesting, you know, and everyone did that. They all had actionable talks, um, ourselves included. I'll toot our own horn. But at the same time, there was a, a thread running through all of them. They were kind of there was like a more philosophical theme on everything. And I've seen something similar in a couple other conferences I've gone to. For whatever reason, the speakers all gravitate, or maybe we're just assi- we, it's easy to assign after the fact, but the speakers gravitate towards one philosophical thread that seems to run through all the talks. And when you, you go through the conference and come out the other side and look back, you're able to say, "Oh, hey." All of the talks kind of touched on this point. That That's kind of interesting. And I guess in the case of Double Your Freelancing Conference, it really was being intentional about your business and about your growth. Every single one of the talks touched on that in one way or another. Yeah, and it really, like, part of what set that tone is, you know, the opening speaker, James Clear, wonderful man who just writes about building habits to be more productive um, and be, you know, lead a better life, be a better person. Um but everything you know, he said was be intentional with what you do, and I took it to heart. Um, and he gave two great examples, and correct me if I'm wrong here. The first was – they were anecdotes, but one was um, a behavioral psychologist who was on a diet, so he decided to design his environment around that. So he took his junk food and he put it in the garage attic, and then the healthy food he left in the kitchen. So if he really wanted the junk food, he'd have to go through the effort of getting it out of the garage attic versus – um, the easy option was always the food. So he had designed his environment in a very intentional way. Yep, and just by putting a small barrier in place, he was able to nudge his behavior in the direction he wanted it to go. And I mean, I see this in my personal life all the time. Uh, uh, if I set it up so, oh gee, my sneakers and my gym clothes are right next to my bed, so I could just wake up and jump into them, there's no barrier to me jogging to the gym and doing my morning workout. But the more barriers I have in place preventing me from this positive behavior, uh, the shoes are in the closet, uh, the clothing's in the hamper, the easier it is to take the path of least action. But by intentionally designing your environment either to promote a positive behavior or reinforce a positive behavior or discourage a negative habit, you're able to uh, achieve more, distract yourself less. Yeah. Yeah. In the So like – uh, we'll give a real world example. You're a business owner, which means you no longer have a boss. So that like typical carrot stick, um, mentality is gone. You know, previously, if you didn't do work, you got fired. And if you did do work, you know, you got employee of the month and a gold star in your permanent record. Once you own your own business, that goes away. So it's up to you, you know, to either be disciplined enough to get stuff done, which, you know, we're all varying levels of disciplined. But if there's things, you know, there's things we just don't want to do or are easily distracted by, we can design our environment around those. So, like, I have a bad habit of just opening a tab, hitting, you know, type F, Facebook opens, and I just check it for no reason and then close it. But, you know, it's a weird, like, ADD habit 
So my solution, uh, I installed a Chrome extension called Facebook Newsfeed Eradicator, and I could still look at and use Facebook, but the newsfeed, you know, that, that slot machine of interesting info is gone now. So I, I've stopped doing it. Like, I only ran it a week, and already I've stopped checking Facebook compulsively like I was doing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I've had the exact same habit with Facebook, with Twitter, with Reddit, and I've gone so far as to block the sites of my host file, install different extensions, but... And everything is easily disableable. I mean, if you wanted to, you could, in three clicks, turn off that Facebook extension. But what I see these behavioral changes doing is giving us the time, even if just it's even if it's just three seconds, yeah, to pause and reflect and say, a "Moment yeah, to is, to make a good choice." Mm-hmm. Is this the thing I want to be doing? Really? Is this how I really want to be spending my time, or is this just the easiest path? Yeah, and what you know, it seems obvious, but. Until I realized it and saw it, I wasn't doing it. So it was really a phenomenal, um, just like it's a tiny but really important mindset shift that's going to make you more productive, save you a bunch of time. And even mm-hmm. like in my own life, I'm always, you know, I'm, I'm bad about taking out the garbage. My job is to take out the trash and the recycling. I'm bad about doing it. And one of my problems with it was it's a pain to like, uh, you know, move, get the, the garbage can lid open and dump the recycling into it or dump into the recycling bin in mm-hmm. our, our garage. So what I've started doing, I face the, the bins, I keep the bins open and face them in such a way that I can easily close them um, without moving them. So I mm-hmm. just like identified that pain and just worked around it. And that's mm-hmm. a tiny thing, but you can like, once you made that realization, you can do that in like probably uh, most aspects of your life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, there's a fabulous author and speaker and podcaster that I'm a, a, a huge, huge fan of, Merlin Mann. He has the podcast Back to Work on the 5x5 Five Five Network, and he really talks a lot about uh, habit and behavior change, less of a life hacky way, but more of a are you focusing on the most important thing and how do you know if the thing you're focusing on is the most important thing way? And his, his podcasts and articles have been very valuable to me as I start to try to answer these questions. Is this the right thing to focus on? How do I know if it's the right thing to focus on? And how can I minimize the time I spend on the time-wasting aspects of it? Just like your example of, "Eh, it's a pain to put out the recycling of the garbage. Well, how can you construct an environment where it's easier and you don't have to fight against it to do it? Yeah, it's perfect. I mean, it's just like, I know some people listen to this, but that's obvious and dumb. But, you know, like just don't focus on those little examples. Just start trying to recognize those things, you know, that you could do faster or shouldn't be doing or wasting time. Which leads us to another wonderful anecdote. Um, the second one that really was an eye-opener was um, a story about, I think it was Warren Buffett. And um, I don't know how the story goes, but essentially the, he told someone, he was make a list of the top 25 things you want to achieve. So the guy goes away and he does it, comes back to Warren Buffett, and Warren Buffett says, all right, things one through five are the things you want to achieve. Things six through 25 did not become your do later list. Those become your do never list. Because what happens is, you know, you have these things that in your life that look like positive, productive things to do, but they're just distractions from your true goals. Like if I can achieve, you know, th- the top five things, one through five, why should I ever even be considering six through 25 unless one through five are done? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, it's, it reminds me of how back in college, 
the one time my house would be spotless and all the dishes would be clean would be whenever I had a term paper due. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because. this is a form of procrastination. If mm-hmm. it's productive and positive and it's a thing you want to achieve, a clean house, why not? Suddenly it it, <laughs> it raises on the priority list. But no, that should be the, um, well, maybe not do never, but, you know, do never until one through five are done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, oh, I, there's, there's a fabulous book. Uh, I think it's The Luck Factor. The author's name is uh, Tracy, oh, I can't remember his last name, but he talks about a similar concept where even just writing out your, he ran a workshop and he had every participant write out their top, say, 10 goals that they wanted to achieve in the next year. And a month later, he followed up with the participants and just said, well, hey, I'm checking in. You wrote out your goals for the next year. How How is it going moving forward? And he talks to three or five of them in a row, and every single one says, I've completed 80% of them. I've finished all of them. And just by taking the time to write out what their goals were, suddenly they were able to see how easy it was to take action to achieve those goals. Similarly here, by writing out your top 25 must-dos over the next year, throwing out the 20 that aren't your top five most important, well, now you have a list of the five things to focus on, and it becomes that much easier to choose where to focus your time and attention. Is Does it relate to or does it move me forward on one of these five key aspects of my business? If it does, great, let's do it. If it doesn't, and there's not a convincing argument to do it, well, de facto, you should not do that thing. You should take the time and focus on the five most important parts of your business. And so this was a huge transformation for me coming back from the conference. I ran through this exercise, looked at the projects I was committed to and said, you know, there's a lot of things here I want to do, but there's only five things, let's say, I can do. I have to tell a number of people that I just don't have the time and energy to do this thing well right now and turn down some opportunities that, while exciting, didn't connect to where I wanted to be moving forward. Yeah, and the side effect of this that's great is um, you're ruthlessly simplifying your life, which is going to reduce a lot of stress in your life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even if it does, and like from personal experience, I could share that it does feel stressful to make that list and be like, I'm not going to do these 20 things, but I really want to do these 20 things. And it's a, it is a moment of stress to confront that desire or that want there, but it's also a moment of strength to say, well, the chances are I'm not going to be able to do all 25 of these things in a year. So there's nothing saying I can't do number six through 25 next year. I could just put them aside and focus on these five until then, realizing that to not do something now doesn't mean that you're never doing it. You're just saying, I'm not doing it now. Yeah, I'm going to focus. I'm I'm agreeing to focus 0% attention on this for 12 months is probably the mm-hmm. way I would look at it. Yes, yep. So, and if, af- you know, mm-hmm. and you've got, you know, the, the power and the ability to do that because, which brings us to our second point, important mindset, you own your business, your business does not own you. It's, it's... I, as a as an independent business owner, this is definitely one of the key aspects that I struggle with the most. Everyone does. It's. I mean, it's so easy to feel like I must do all of the things, or when a new client comes along, oh, they want to work with me, I should feel honored. I I better accept this project. But if you adopt that mentality or fall into that trap, all you turn into is an order taker. You're, yeah. Well, and I see this with in a. It happens in the worst, most bizarre way with. Um, e-commerce store owners is every customer who makes a suggestion or encounters a problem that immediately become goes on a to-do list of a thing to do. And that's where you end up with these websites that are just like, 
have insane navigations, crazy structures, um, and are just like littered with haphazard widgets and apps and stuff. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. instead of focusing on that one ideal customer, they listened to everybody where like every single suggestion and question that went into their inbox became a to-do list of crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yep. and really what they're doing is like their inbox was, you know, starts controlling them instead of them owning the business and saying, Hey, I appreciate that suggestion. You know, I, I'm glad we're, um, you know, you've made, given us this opportunity to do better and then just quietly don't put that on your roadmap. You don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I think a low-level mind shift that's important here as a business owner is understanding that a customer who emails you, there's no way for them to know your business as well as you know your business. So while they might have the best intentions, they might have, in the rare case, a valuable, actionable suggestion – most of the time they're asking for something that furthers their needs as a customer that doesn't necessarily further your needs as or your growth as a business owner. And to Actually, tell a customer that's probably the situation ninety-nine percent of the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ah, it would be amazing if I could, you know, enter my coupon code on this page. Well, that that doesn't make my business any better. So yeah. thank and you it's for suggesting to- it. It's hard because you feel bad saying, you know, no, especially if it's a good idea, but is it going to help, you know, your ideal customer or 90% or even 50% of your customers? Or is it just helping this one guy? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember my first job out of college. I worked at a company where we were very eager to implement new features based on one person requesting it. And our business became a bloated business where we were trying to do 17 different number one priority things at once and the business started to tank because of it because we weren't lean and focused on being in control of our business we no longer owned our business we had sold it for no money down to customers who were very eager to become our boss exactly you own your business your business does not own you which is and that's you know that's the positive side of it the inverse side of it is if you know, you're unhappy and hate your business, you fucked up. Like, you're the only person to blame there. So, but at the same time, you're the guy who could fix it. And if you mm-hmm. don't like doing something, maybe you're not good at it. Stop banging your head against a wall and figure out, work around it, hire someone to do it for you. Maybe don't do it anymore, do something else. You know, I see a lot of that where people are like, oh, you know, they're trying to sell all these different products, but they're really only graded a few. It's like, just do the few that don't make you crazy. Mm-hmm. The most common mm-hmm. example is people's like, oh, I've got all these, these little orders. And when you consider the time, I don't make money on them. Like, okay, don't sell anything less than 50 bucks. Done. And they're like, well, no, but people buy those. So <laughs> you make no money and you're unhappy doing it. Ah, uh, uh, yep. Yep. And, and one step further from that, I mean, in my past, I've shut down three profitable businesses because I hit the point where, I just didn't enjoy it anymore. And, yeah, well, it's okay for that to happen. You could say, oh, yeah. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm bored. Guess what? You got one life. You have a limited amount of time. And you have a limited amount of cognitive capacity to keep all these things rattling around in your head. So do mm-hmm. the stuff that makes you happy that you love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 100%. If, if you, dear listener, or you, future me, keep waking up and you're like, ah, I own my own business and I should love it, but I'm just uh, burnt out on it. Change the business. I mean, nobody. There's no. There's no authority who's going to say, "Well, sir, you only scored a C on entrepreneurship this year <laughs> as an adult. We're taking away your entrepreneurship license. You get to do whatever the heck you want. You hate your business. Burn the business to the ground. Go do something else exciting. Start up something new in a different industry. Take six months off if you could afford it. 
you, for better or, or worse, have unlimited power in that sense. And that's the scariest realization I've ever had as an entrepreneur and something that I'm probably going to spend the next three years accepting and implementing that knowledge that, well, yeah, I, I could do whatever I want. And that means I could choose to focus ruthlessly on one small thing in my business, or I could choose to kill my business off completely. There's, there's no wrong answer there. It's just what the best choice is for me and my business. I couldn't have said it better, <laughs> which, you know, really brings us to, you know, talking about shutting businesses down because they don't make you happy, et cetera. You know, that, that brings us to the the next point, And that's, um, the philosophical end of your business. You know, what is, what's the end of your business? Like, so, you know, the problem we get into in any business when you're a business owner is essential, you know, because it's a series of transactions, it inevitably turns into a carousel. So, you know, for us, it's client on, client off, client on, client off. And, or it's for, you know, with, um, e-commerce, it's even worse and faster. It's, you know, order in, order out, order in, order out. And eventually it, you get bored of it. You know, it wears you down. So what do you do? You know, maybe it's time, you know, shut the business down, sell the business, move on to something else. Or, you know, what I think makes the most sense is iterate, you know, develop a, a new product line, develop a new channel, a new service and shut down, you know, either phase out the old stuff, you know, do things that are going to grow the business while making you happy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Just because somebody wants to pay you money to do something does not mean you need to accept their money. Be it a service business you run or a product business you run, you could have customers knocking on your door saying, man, I, I, I'd love to pay you $10 for a blue widget. But if you're not in the blue widget business and that's not interesting for you to be in, you don't have to accept their money. Likewise, on the service side, if you decide, well, I'm, gonna, I'm no longer going to do this type of service, you can stop. And if people keep saying, hey, I want to pay you money to do it, you don't need to accept their money. You could say, I don't do this anymore. Check out these people or I don't do this anymore. Good luck. You are, you are the only one who gets to determine which direction your business grows in and where to stop growing if you want to stop growing or when to switch over and grow something else. Yeah, and there's another um, topic that came up is a lot of people view like, you know, the, the philosophical end of their business is, well, I have to keep growing it. And they define growth by the number of employees I've hired. I think that's insane. Mm -hmm. like, if you want to be a manager, if you want to hire people, and if it makes sense to do it, go for it. But if you don't want to, that's not growth. You don't have to. And at the same time, you don't always have to be on an upward trajectory. If your business has you know, reached a point where you're making enough money, you're happy doing it, it's easy, and you like the carousel, that just stop. Just keep doing that. I think that's the definition of winning when it comes to business. Like, oh, I, I, I'm paying for everything. I'm making a good salary. I love what I do. I don't feel a need to grow. Yeah, congrats. You won. <laughs> Just <laughs> ride that out. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's, I think, what we should be aspiring towards as business owners instead of this constant fervor, be it startup focused or be it external focus or another factor focused of I need to grow to be successful. Well, a successful business might be, you know what, I'm making six figures and I'm happy and I work a 30-hour week and get to take Fridays off. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of it is people get wrapped up, you know, they in like startup culture, in IPOs, where those metrics are important. They're mm -hmm. not important for you. They don't, like unless you're, you have VCs, you know, you don't, if you're bootstrapped, you don't have to worry about that stuff. Do whatever you want. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That said, I, I, I think... 
it's important to have one key metric you do focus on in your business just to know if you are improving in the right direction. And that might be like hours less than 40 I've worked this week, just so you're optimizing to like, how can I get all my stuff done in 20 hours this week instead of 40? It might be, how many new subscribers did I add this month? Or it might be, uh, what was my, what were my monthly sales this month? But, what was my, so, you know, for me, it's effective hourly rate. Mm-hmm. I don't, I can work less for the same amount and then my effective hourly rate goes up or, you know, I could sell more and work the same amount and my effective hourly rate goes up. Um, for like in e-commerce, it could be, you know, I'd probably focus on like average order value as your metric because you mm-hmm. don't, you're like picking and packing orders is the pain in the ass part. So if you can get a higher average order, that's great. Or, you know, just incru- uh, increase margins on products. Like those would be mm-hmm. all really great metrics where you're going to feel good about growing the business and not tearing your hair out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, 100%. But that is, I, I, that's a very solid point about the, pick one great KPI. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for folks that don't know, KPI is a key performance indicator. My mistake. Eh. <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, it, it's when I look back at my business over the last few years, I've been always been focused on like four to six different metrics. And some might be improving one month, some might be going down one month, and... It's hard to know, well, if these four went up, but these two went down, did I win? Did I lose? What what exactly is going on? In in that spirit of being intentional and being simple, just picking the one thing that's the most important metric or the metric that you want to optimize for to have a happier life or a more successful business, that can be a big mind shift. And suddenly you're saying, okay, like the one thing I care about is average order value. As I plan out my next year of growing my store, well, he, great, here's 12 projects I can do. Which one of these relate to increasing average order value? Oh, half of them do. Great. Let's throw away the other six. We're not focusing on them until next year. It lets you know what to choose to focus on, where to focus your attention. Solid points. One and all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, that's all I wanted to cover. I mean, there were, I met just meeting tons of great people, connecting with people. I mean, it was a phenomenal experience. Um, and like both for both of us, our first proper public speaking gig. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you did great. Thank you. You yeah. you did you did great as well. Your slides were excellent. Thank you. Yeah, you had <laughs> uh, <laughs> my favorite was your your just perfect serious delivery. You know, after you explained all you know where you're at, what you're doing, and then just the slide and the perfect delivery of this shit works. <laughs> for for context, I was talking about the value in growing an audience to. Uh, build up a consultancy base. And so I shared numbers about how my business had grown over the last few years, the revenue I've done this far. And the first 30 minutes of the presentation were me very much being serious business guy and just the cold drop of like, this shit works, pause. It got a great laugh. I, I loved that. It was, yeah, it was it. like without missing a beat, it was the same delivery. It was very good. <laughs> I liked it a lot. But for f- folks listening, if you haven't been to an industry event or an industry conference, I highly recommend it both for uh, grow, pushing yourself to grow by taking time away from your business. It's, uh, it was, it's very important. I, I tweeted about this while I was at the conference. I managed to take a week off from my business, not check my email, not do any client work, and nothing blew up. And It's an I've important a, lesson. I've been a guy who's been afraid of taking vacations for my business for the last four years because, oh, God, what if something happens? But this was the first time I was able to back away and realize, okay, nothing blew up. Great. And yeah, it's a huge lesson to learn. 
The, the second reason I'd encourage anybody listening to attend a conference or a meetup or an industry event is meeting your peers is a wonderful way to grow. Just learning the challenges they're facing, learning how they've overcome challenges that you're facing, the information you're able to share beyond what you learn from the speakers is a huge, huge takeaway from a conference. For sure. Yeah, no, definitely. Find a, find a good conference. Go to it. I mean, I don't think... Even if it's like a lousy conference, you'll still meet great people. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you won't do it. For sure, do it. I know it's kind of expensive. It's important. Um, you will get more value out of it than you spend, I promise. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And I think that's that's a, a good point to bring up that investment mindset that everyone at this conference seemed to have where, I mean, when you add up like the flight, the cost of the ticket, the cost of the hotel, the cost of food, people were spending somewhere between 1000 and $2,000 for this a couple day event, but by having that investment mindset and saying like, yeah, I'm spending, let's say 3000 bucks on this, but what exactly would need to come out of it for me to break even or make money? If I land one client with these strategies, if I raise my rate 25%, the wins you could experience from it greatly dwarf the initial cost. So if you own an e-commerce store and you're like, eh, what's, what's the value I'm going to an event? Well, what if you got advice that raised your average order value by $50 or increased your uh, conversion rate by half of a percent? What would that look like to your business? It, I can't guarantee that a conference would bring those types of outcomes, but it's putting you in proximity of people who could help you achieve those outcomes. Yeah, oh, absolutely. The the hallway track, you know, the, the people you meet between talks, I think is where the real value in these things lies. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. One cool thing that this conference did was to set up a Slack channel, a chat channel for all the attendees in the week before the conference. So it was just a great way for people to meet each other and avoid those conference heebie-jeebies of like, who are you? What do you do? <laughs> when the event started, we had a de- like 80 of the 100 people attending had a decent idea of like, oh, you you do this and you work on this project. And it made it easier for people to jump in and start socializing. You know, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. Also, you know, we just love Slack. It's it's a wonderful tool. They should sponsor this podcast. <laughs> I will send them that link ASAP. Um, yeah, I mean that's all everything I wanted to to cover. I think that's a, a great great wrap up of you know what we learned there. I just saved you a five hundred dollar conference ticket. You're welcome. <laughs> Season one is already starting out saving you five hundred dollars, folks. Come on, each episode is just going to save you more money. Plus all that advice in there. That's thousands more you'll earn this year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, uh, the key takeaway I'd say for people listening to this is that idea of making a list of your 25 business priorities just to see like where your attention wants to be focused and then figuring out what the top five are and throwing away the rest. That gives you a laser focus for 2016 in your business. And it's never too early to start. Uh, each year I do an annual write-up where I'm like, well, what are my goals for the coming year? I start that in November. So I'm spending all of November and December thinking about what I want my next year to look like. You could easily spend the next three months saying, well, what are the top 25? And what are the top five of those 25? And spending like an hour a month or two hours a month thinking about that over the next three months can give you a huge leg up as you hit 2016. Because, yeah, if you start with that and you're excited about it, you know, for me anyway, it ended up turning into a roadmap of like, this is what I'm going to be doing, working on the next six months. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, actually, I've never, I haven't been um, this excited about business in, in a, well, since I don't know when. Like, I literally have lost sleep over just thinking about the possibilities of what I could do now. 
that that's a wonderful problem to have. It is a good problem to have. <laughs> but yeah, and it, it I think that exercise gets you out of business blues or business humdrum. When you have 10,000 number one priorities, well, you're you're not really going to accomplish everything. Not everything can be a number one priority. And when you exactly. know what your top five are, now it's easier to execute. Now it's easier to see how opportunities come up and are in front of you. It's it's weeding the metaphorical garden. Yes, exactly. Um, all right, I think that about wraps it up. Mr. Kai Davis, where could people go to find out more about you? If people want to find out more about me, they could uh, visit my website, doubleyouraudience.com, or they could follow me on Twitter at Kai S. Davis. Excellent. And I heard that you are pre-selling a product. I am. I, I, I should tell people about that. I'm a, Go, please plug it. Please. I, I am launching a, a, a workbook called The Traffic Manual. It's focused on helping product creators, e-commerce store owners, or consultants increase the amount of traffic they're receiving by promoting their product to an audience of best buyers. So I've been consulting on helping e-commerce store owners and software as a service consultancy owners and consultancy agent and agency owners get more traffic and more leads for the last two years. So I'm boiling down the strategies, the tactics, and the systems I use to help you get more traffic into an easy-to-follow workbook. And uh, it's on pre-sale right now for 50% off. And if it interests you, you could read more about it at doubleyouraudience.com forward slash traffic dash manual. And if I don't remember to put that in the show notes, go ahead and kick me. I, I will sob, sob deep and long. <laughs> no, yeah, just, I, I'll probably forget. Just tell me and I'll put it back in the show notes. <laughs> will do. Will do. Cool. All right. Thank you, Mr. Kai Davis. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. And I hope the audience enjoyed this uh, little wrap about DYFCOM. Yeah. And if you did, you know, shoot us an email, let us know. We'd love to hear it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.